If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to James 2. Um, if you were on social media, uh, and, and yes, I'm sure you saw friends with their kids in costumes and all kinds of cute things and their candy hauls and all that, all that kind of stuff, but perhaps you noticed a few friends who seemed to be trying to nudge you to think about something else. You know, that your friends tried to attempt to reshift your focus uh, from Halloween to Reformation Day. You know, so kind of like people who are like, you know, we're not going to do what the culture is doing. We're going to remember something that happened 503 years ago. Reformation Day remembers Martin Luther's nailing of 95 theses, as it's called, to the door of the church in, in Wittenberg, Germany, in protest of the theology and practice of the Catholic Church. October 31st, 1517 is remembered in history as uh, the beginning of the Protestant, Ref the Protestant Reformation. Really, it's just kind of like the standout uh, date for the beginning. But a major focus of the Protestant Reformation is how someone becomes right with God. How someone becomes right with God. Really, there's no bigger question that any of us can answer is how we become right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.29 says, For our sake he made him, referring to Christ, God made Christ to be sin. Not that he sinned, but to take the place of our sin being punished in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is how we become right with God. Martin Luther, just a couple years after pounding that 95 thesis to that door in Wittenberg, said this, Referring to 2 Corinthians 5.21, this, said Luther, is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, whereby, wherein, by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it and he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them so that now the righteousness of Christ is ours and that is what the Protestant, Protestant Reformation is about is about Christ's righteousness becoming ours this is justification God declaring us righteous in Christ so that we are reconciled to God Galatians 2 verse 16 tells us how we are justified Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, not made right with God, not declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. One is not justified by works, by obedience, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The reformers explained this idea. We are only justified sola fide, or through, that's a Latin phrase, faith alone. J.I. Packer writes, Faith is a conscious acknowledgement of our unrighteousness and ungodliness, and on that basis, a looking to Christ as our righteousness, right? Acknowledgement of our, our unrighteousness, looking to Christ as our righteousness, a clasping of him, J.I. Packer writes, as the ring clasps the jewel. 
So, so Luther, he's quoting Luther there. A receiving of him as an empty vessel receives treasure, so Calvin. And a reverent, resolute reliance on the biblical promise of life through him for all who believe. That is what it is to be justified through faith in Christ. Let's then quote there. Well, I know the quote a little while ago. The focus of saving faith is not the quality of our faith, but the righteousness the death and the resurrection of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith is not the drowning man's boat. Right? If someone's drowning and there's a boat, that boat is not faith. But without faith, the drowning man will not get into the boat. Right? He has to believe that that boat is going to save him. Christ alone is the one who saves. He saves through faith alone. Now we're going to see where all this is going here. We need this primer. It was in God's providence that Reformation Day would lead so well into this. And we'll see why in James in just a minute. So, while we are united to Christ through faith alone, that's the way we receive Christ. We are united to Christ. It's only through faith. We each must be certain that we have faith that has united us with Christ. And that's a little bit of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Do you have the faith that has united you to Jesus Christ? Has your faith gotten you into that boat as a drowning man? This morning we will explore that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote to early Christian Jews who had put their faith in Christ. These brothers and sisters confessed faith in Christ alone. But for some, that faith was disturbingly alone. Did they actually have saving faith? James was not going easy on the Christians to whom he was writing. He was not going easy on them. He had begun by encouraging them to persevere during trials. James 1.12 looks forward to what God's going to do in the future. It's, it's very hopeful. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. They can look forward to salvation. James 1.18 looks back to when they were saved. In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He's given you new life. James exalts God as the one who begins our salvation and the one who will bring our salvation to completion. This is a God-centered book. This is a book that glorifies the work of God. But James also focuses on our responsibility. And reading the book of James gets uncomfortable. It has been uncomfortable to me, and I trust it's been uncomfortable for some of you. It's, James is kind of like a parent trying to get their kid's attention when they're concerned that their child is not telling the truth. See, they can see that the kid has chocolate on their face, that they have been into their Halloween candy. They've got chocolate on their face. But the child is refusing to admit that they actually ate some of their Halloween candy or ate too much of it. So the parent is giving the ch child time to confess by asking them questions. And that's kind of what James is doing here. Did you eat that chocolate? How much chocolate did you eat? I can tell you ate chocolate, right? 
James is concerned that some of his audience has a faith in Jesus Christ. And notice I say a faith in Jesus Christ, but that their faith may not have saved them. That they have the right object of that faith, but that faith is not saving faith. And we're going to see that. We've been seeing several hints of this. Like in James 1.21, he says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And he's not saying them to them there, you haven't received this faith. But he is challenging them. That faith is going to save you. You need to continue in that. Or listen to James 1.22. Prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He would not say this if he was not concerned that some of them may be deluding themselves, deceiving themselves. Or James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself he is religious, which, and this is not talking about religion in a bad way, like just empty religion. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, a, a, a God-fearer, and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He is concerned that not all of his audience has this pure and undefiled religion. Notice there's the theme here. He's challenging them. He's pushing at them. He's saying, I'm looking and I'm seeing some chocolate on your face. Don't you have something you need to make right here? Following James' rebuke of partiality in the beginning of James chapter 2, when he rebuked them for, for failing to show mercy, for failing to love their neighbor as themselves, James says in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And perhaps some were wondering, but James, where's the gospel? Where's the promise of forgiveness to all who believe? Where's the simplicity of Acts 2.21? Some of them could have been there for that first preaching. When, 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 when the saints, when the Jewish people were gathered at Pentecost and they heard Peter say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps some of them are thinking, James, I thought we were right with God. We've already accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died in the place of sinners, that he's a suffering servant, that he rose from the dead. Haven't you heard of Reformation Day, James? Perhaps some of you are feeling that too. Maybe you're tired of James' focus of doing works, on doing good, on being different from the world. Perhaps you're wondering, aren't we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Aren't we celebrating something that happened 503 years ago with that Reformation that exalts much more importantly, what Christ did in his death and resurrection. See, James had left his audience in an uncomfortable place. And he had done so intentionally. See, his concern for their souls was greater than his desire for their comfort. And it's okay if we're feeling uncomfortable as we're reading some of James. Some of us should be feeling comfortable. I'm going to read now James 2, 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, James says, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And really in the Greek, I'll say this. It's can faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being in itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Are you willing? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God and has reckoned him to his righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. We're going to get back to that next week. It's going to be awesome. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This morning, we're going to begin a two-part exploring of the relationship between faith and works. So it's kind of a two-parter here. Exploring the relationship between faith and works. This week in James 2, verses 14 to 19, we're going to follow James' argument that faith by itself cannot save you. Wow, right? Scary. Okay, I just said that. You'll understand. We'll examine James' argument that faith by itself cannot save you so that you will evaluate whether you have faith alone or only faith. Okay? So you will be able to evaluate whether you have faith alone or only faith. Faith alone, good. Only faith, bad. So what James is going to argue here, we see in verse 14 through a rhetorical question. There is a faith that cannot save. And that's the proposition we're going to start with. There is a faith that cannot save. We can even add to that. There's a faith in Christ that can't save. James 2.14 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Or like I mentioned, in the Greek is, can faith save him? And James begins with a rhetorical question, which he assumes will be answered by, no, that faith can't save him. James' proposition is that you cannot be saved by faith, which is not accompanied by works. There is an ineffective faith. There is a insufficient, an, an insufficient faith. There is an unsuccessful faith. There is a faith that cannot save. And some of you here this morning may have that kind of faith. You might say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. That may not be saving faith. See, this futile faith will not save you from life-dominating power of sin in this life. This kind of faith will not rescue you from the eternal penalty of sin in the life to come. This kind of faith will not save you from enmity with God. There is a kind of faith which is placed upon Christ that has Christ as its object, but which has not connected someone to Christ's death and resurrection. It's a faith that leaves you isolated. Imagine for a moment an astronaut, and he's doing a spacewalk. 
And he has a line from his backpack. It's a tube which both brings air to him and it keeps him tethered to the spaceship. And he holds on to that tube with confidence, right? It's keeping him from drifting off into space with no end, in eternity in space, at least until he runs out of air. And he's holding on to this tube, this, 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 this tether. He has faith in that tube. But does that tube do any good if it's not connected to that spaceship? With, unless that tube is connected, that man is as good as dead. Adrift in space and with no oxygen. It doesn't matter how much faith that astronaut has if that tube is not tethered to that spaceship. This brings us to a really important question. How do you know if your faith is tethered you to Jesus Christ? Has tied you to Christ? Has united you with Christ? How do you know if you have Christ's righteousness applied to your account? How do you know that when he died on the cross, he died to take the punishment of your sins? How do you know if you have a tethered faith? And James answered, a faith that saves is a faith that works. A faith that saves is a faith that works. The word works can also be translated as deeds or actions. And the idea of works here is acts of obedience. Like, for example, in the previous paragraph, loving your neighbor as yourself. Or showing mercy or not showing partiality. Now James is not referring here, and this is important, to pre-conversion works. He's not talking about acts that we do so that we can gain a right standing with God, some kind of religious rituals we can go through, or even good deeds. Some people think that they are made right with God by doing religious things or good works. Instead, James is speaking of the necessary, the necessary confirming presence of post-conversion works, of post-new life works, of post-union with Christ works. Works which testify to our right standing with God. James is not saying that we're saved by faith and works. James would not disagree with what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. James is describing the nature of saving faith. Saving faith manifest itself in works. Faith without works is not saving faith. Works don't bring us to Christ, but they are present in those who have been saved by Christ. They don't bring us to Christ, but they are present in those who have been saved by Christ. As one preacher puts it, the question is not, can faith save the lost? Of course faith saves the lost. Scripture is very clear. The question is, can a faith without deeds save the lost? And he's not saying there, can a faith and work save the lost? No, he's saying, can a faith without deeds save the lost? And the answer to the question is no. A faith without deeds does not save. And James is going to argue that, that, that proposition with four truths in verses 15 to 19. He's going, to, he's going to make four claims here to argue that point. That there's a faith that's not a saving faith. And the first one is in verses 15 and 16. Faith without works is as useless as warm wishes. 
Faith without works is as useless as warm wishes. And I thought many times reading through this has become such a slogan in our culture. Thoughts and prayers, right? Faith is as useless as warm wishes. Faith without works is as useless as warm wishes. James begins with an illustration of the futility of faith without works. James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Without clothing means not necessarily that they're naked, naked but that they are, 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 are inadequately clothed. Whether that means they're wearing rags or they don't have enough clothes to keep themselves warm. In need of daily bread, it doesn't mean that they don't have any food, though that could be. But that they are someone who is consistently underfed. Perhaps malnourished. Not getting enough food. This person he's describing is not necessarily destitute on that day. But they are consistently needy. He describes the Christian's response here. You, to a brother or sister, to another Christian. Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Now, at best, this is a well-intentioned blessing. And maybe even a kind of prayer. A wish for someone's best. That God will care for the person. And at worst, it may be a rebuke of some kind. Like, be warmed and be filled. You go do that for yourself. The warmly stated wish cannot mask an ice-cold heart. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. You have the means to help, but do nothing to bless them. And you do nothing but bless them, pray for them, and maybe even exhort them. You should really get a job. James says, what use is that? And that use there could also be translated, what, what good is that? What benefit is that? And then verse 17, he starts, even so faith, and so also faith. And now we see what he's been doing. James' illustration between warm wishes and faith works on two levels. It's an illustration of something that sounds good, but accomplishes nothing. The warm wishes accomplishes as much for the needy brother as faith without works helps this confessing brother. You are as likely to be united to Christ with that kind of faith. A faith that sounds good, but that it doesn't do anything. As a needy sister is likely to be nourished and warmed by that kind of blessing. That kind of blessing isn't going to do anything for them. And that kind of faith isn't going to do anything for you. That's sobering, right? But I believe in Jesus. James like, that's not my point. That faith is useless. Does no one any good, doesn't do you good, doesn't do anyone else good. And that, that's how the illustration works on a second level. This kind of negligence to do good works prompted James to write, concerned about their salvation. This is why he's writing. This turning a blind eye to the need is in the same vein as failing to visit widows and orphans. It parallels showing favoritism. It's not loving your neighbor as yourself. The so-called Christian's failure to help his brother in need does as much good to their brother as that faith does for themselves. 
It's of no benefit, no advantage. It's a wallet without cash or card. It's a fridge without food. It's a gas station that's empty. It's a scuba tank without oxygen. It's a wrapped box that looks beautiful on the outside but contains no present on the inside. It sounds good, but it has no substance. If you were to die today, we're going to not finish that with, with, with what answer would you give to God about why you would let you into his presence because Jesus died for me. I'm going to ask you a different question. If you were to die today, would your faith be useful to you or useless to you? See, the question is not the same as, do you believe? Many of you, especially kids here now, are growing up believing that Jesus died for you. Many people believe in Christ to rescue them from judgment. But is that faith saving faith? James doesn't say a simple yes or no. He says, faith without works is a useless kind of faith. It's not saving faith. It's an imitation response to the gospel. It sounds the same. It has the same content, the same object, but it lacks substance. It's not real faith. This kind of faith will protect you as much on judgment day as warm wishes will keep you warm on a cold night. Many will enter into hell with useless faith. Many will enter into hell with useless faith. As James' first claim, faith without works is useless as warm wishes. The second one is, 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 it is similar. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And we see he continues with that in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James' claim is startling. Faith without works is dead. James includes here in works the kinds of works he's been talking about in this letter, but we could add to them. Includes the work of enduring, of being steadfast. Includes the work of doing the word, of controlling our tongues, of resisting the stain of the world, of visiting orphans and widows, of not showing partiality, fulfilling the law of liberty, that royal law of love. These works are the transformed life that follows repentance and faith in Christ. The transformed life that follows repentance and faith in Christ. See, these works are distinctively Christian behavior. It is behavior that is distinguished from the nicest, most moral, non-believing friends you have. I know some of us have some very nice moral friends. This is distinctively Christian behavior. And, and, and I think that's great to ask ourselves, what makes this behavior different? And you guys will see in some of the study guide questions. There's questions pushing that way. This is a behavior that follows a rejection of the world system and which submits to living Jesus' way, which embraces living according to his law. See, this is more than being a nice moral person. Works are obedience to Jesus Christ. There's many nice moral people in our neighborhood who kindly open up their homes and threw candy at children. You might be overwhelmed by, look at all the nice people in our neighborhood. See, this is distinguishing obedience. This is not a question of, have you done something extra nice for your wife or your kids? Or when was the last time you, you did something to really show someone love? 
Or have you been kind to your neighbors? Those without Christ do all those kinds of things. We live in a world where many people are incredibly devoted and sacrificial to give their kids everything. James includes the works you do because Jesus Christ is your Lord. Right? These are the works you do, and many of them may be similar. They may be overlapping. They may be the same. But it's because Jesus Christ is your Lord. Notice James doesn't say, faith is dead. Right? James is not hopeless here. There is a faith which is not dead. You can be encouraged. You can believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Listen to Romans 3.28. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You can be confident that your faith is saving faith, that it is living faith. So we have to ask ourselves, how do I know if I have this living faith? Living faith hopes in Christ alone. It does not rest its hope in works that it has done. That's one way we know what living faith is. It hopes in Christ alone. But living faith, hope in Christ is not alone. Living faith's hope in Christ is not alone. It hopes in Christ alone, but it is not alone. And James warns against a lonely faith. A faith by itself. A faith which has no works. Many of us, perhaps all of us, believe that exercise would improve our long-term health. But if that belief is never accompanied by exercise, if that belief is left by itself, it is what kind of faith? It's dead faith, maybe literally to some of us, right? Many of us believe that texting while driving is dangerous. Perhaps some of you will raise your hand and say, no, it's not, but I think most of you would agree. But if we occasionally pick up our phone and get distracted by a sports score, our faith is by itself. It's not influencing our actions. The problem isn't the presence of faith. We have faith. We know that texting while driving is bad or that we shouldn't be distracted by our smartphone. It's the kind of faith. A dead faith ends in eternal death. But a living faith results in works, in deeds, in actions. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Is that how we get into heaven, by doing works? No, it's who gets into heaven. Faith by itself, faith separated from works, isn't genuine. It's defective faith. It is more in common with a body in a cemetery or the ashes on a mantle than it does with living faith. So do you have faith without works or faith with works? This question may be tough for some of you to answer. And there's good works in your life you can point to. A check you write. A phone call you made. A way you serve the body. You're a hard-working person caring for your family. Maybe you made a sacrifice for your family recently. Maybe you stopped watching a show on Netflix because it went too far. 
And that's good. It's good. It's encouraging to see a sign of life. A, a, a blip on the heart monitor means, hey, there's still work to do here, right? But how much better is it to see a healthy heart, right? To see whatever that you're supposed to see, the doctors know what you should see. But So do you get the marching orders of your life from Jesus Christ? Do you get the marching orders of your life from Jesus Christ? Living faith puts into action the king's, uh, the, the, the king's ca, ca, ca commands. Excuse me. Living faith puts into action the king's commands. Is that how you structure your day? Today, it's not just about going to work. It's not just about caring for my kids. It's not even about doing nice things for my coworkers. Today is about fulfilling the law of liberty. Today is about fulfilling the royal law. Today is about becoming like Jesus Christ. Today is about being transformed. James' desire for you is not to drum up some evidence from the annals of your life, maybe a mission trip you went on or when you helped someone move, a hospital visit you made. Especially if those activities are few and far between, you know, to think back and say, well, there's this time I, I, I gave someone a ride. It's better to ask, is my life stained by the world or is my life saturated with Christ's likeness? Am I just like everyone else or am I like Christ? Is my life selfish or is my life serving? Is my life me-centered or God-glorifying? Do I have zombie faith, a faith that occasionally stumbles into a good work? Or do I have a vibrant faith, a faith that embraces the king's law with optimism, knowing that it's a law of liberty? What kind of faith do you have? Do, does Christ say, come and follow me? And you're like, I just got to get rid of some stuff first so I can follow you, Christ. My whole life is yours. Faith without works is as useless as warm wishes. Faith without works is dead. Third, James' third claim in this proof that there's a faith that doesn't save is saving faith is demonstrated by works. And, and, and I know he's, he, he's saying the same thing in multiple ways here, but that's what he's doing. He's saying the same thing in multiple ways. Faith, saving faith, is demonstrated by works. James 2.18 says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Now, in your New American Standard Bibles, that quote goes into the end of, of verse 18. Most commentators would put that quote at the end of verse works. And I think it makes more sense there. It's difficult because quotation marks aren't in the Greek. So we have to figure the, this out. But I would put that quotation there. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. The little quotation mark is there. End of what that someone may say. And then James begins, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. James imagines an argument in which someone tries to separate faith from works in order to justify themselves, or maybe you're doing that even now, for someone you love. Like, is that person saved? Well, maybe they're more of a faith person. You know, they're, they're, they're not so much of a works person, but they've got faith. Or I remember when they made a confession... I think we all have those kinds of people in our lives, and maybe some of us 
are them now. So they're arguing that maybe there's different kinds of Christian. There's some are faith and some have works. Perhaps kind of like knowing that we have different gifts. And these people kind of wonder, you know, isn't James really just criticizing God's sovereign bestowal of gifts? Is, isn't he judging, kind of assuming that each one should have works while diminishing one person's remarkable faith? Look, they've been believing in Jesus for years without any works. That's me being sarcastic there. James has an answer. And he's sarcastic too. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James responds, but I know I have faith. It's an impossible for you to prove to me, to yourself, or to anyone else. Your faith without works, you can't prove that. But I can prove that I possess saving faith by works. Saints, have you proved and I don't mean to other people, but to yourself that you have saving faith through your works. We all know the foolishness of claiming, making claims we can't, make, we can't back up. I can claim that I can beat any of you in one-on-one basketball here, but I would not be able to back that claim up. I could claim that I could beat anyone at chess here, but I would not be able to back up that claim either. All that is is just empty boasting. And that's what saying we're saved by faith without works is. It's just empty boasting. I mean, by not having works. Saved, saved by faith and not having works. Saving faith is not proven by a great testimony, by a conversion story, by your baptism, by attending meetings, by tithing, by religious actions done in the past. It's not by going forward and doing more religious actions in the future. It's pro proven by heartfelt obedience and submission to Jesus Christ. Motivated by love and gratitude. That is how you prove saving faith. Now, James is not suggesting like, oh, wow, Pastor Isaiah is coming, coming down hard. I need to do, do some good works to prove I'm in the fold. James is not suggesting we drum up some works to prove that we're saved to one another. But he is advocating that we, when we look in the mirror, when we look in the mirror of God's law and we say, is my faith saving faith? Do I have this new life in Christ? Not have I believed, but do I have new life? We ought to be able to point to obedience and say, yes, my faith is proved in my works. We can look in the mirror and say, God is transforming me into a servant like his son, Jesus Christ. We should be able to say, I am learning what it means to pick up my cross and follow. I, I, I'm acting out that it is better to give than receive. I am learning to love my enemies. God has made me a fisher of men who cares about the souls of my neighbors. Believing in Christ is making me like Christ. That is what it means to prove that we have this saving faith. It is by our being transformed. Not being able, it's not, it's not just conforming with other very moral Americans. The fact that our salvation can be seen suggests that others will be able to see our salvation as well. We can show others our faith by our works. 
what James says. When someone comes to you concerned, and they humbly come and say, Brother, is your faith saving faith? You can say, as you obey, as faith becomes works, look how Christ has changed me. Look at how I've repented. Look at my eagerness to obey. The center of my life has shifted from my pleasure to God's glory. The center of my life has shifted from doing what I want to doing what he wants. My days are about obedience. To be like Christ, it means we can say, my food is the Father's will. Now, do we say that we do that perfectly? No, but we can say that of us truly. Do you have that confidence? Do you have a faith that you can show, not for your glory, not to say, look at me and my works, for God's glory? From your actions and your reactions and your heart being like Christ's heart, can your kids pick you out of a lineup of other nice moral neighbors? Right, you, you, you line up a bunch of nice neighbors who work hard and take care of their families. And can they say, my mom is different. My dad is different. Because they belong to Jesus Christ. We can see where James is going with this, right? He's pushing. James is concerned that we do not have this faith which cannot save. He talked about how faith without works is as useless as warm wishes. Faith without works is dead. Saving faith can be demonstrated, is demonstrated by works, and then fourth claim. Saving faith is more than believing right doctrine. Kids, saving faith is more than believing the right things about Jesus. It's to all of us. James 2.19. You believe that God's one, referring to Deuteronomy 6.4, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. That's James' sarcasm coming through. James refers here to Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And James could have used any numbers of examples of right doctrine that, that, that his whole audience would have been able to affirm. And when he says you do well, it, it is difficult to know how sarcastic he's being. Yeah, it's, it's good you believe that, but that's not enough. James warns lest they pat themselves on the back too enthusiastically. The demons also believe that. You can imagine a very strange conversation with your children. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah, well that's the same thing the demons believe. See, true doctrine may separate men from men, but it does not separate men from demons. Not only do the demons believe, James says that they respond appropriately and shudder. That means they, they tremble with fear when they think of God and coming judgment. They're terrified. Ironically, the demons are those for whom faith erupts into an appropriate response. And God requires a much different response from his people, 
although maybe that's a good starting point. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. The demons shudder at their enemy. Do we love the one with whom we've been reconciled? Are we transformed by this love for the one that we say has saved us? We do need right doctrine to be saved. I hope you know I love doctrine. You need to believe in the God of Scripture. You need to believe that God's word is true. You need to believe that the Son of God became a man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died in the place of sinners, that he took the punishment they deserved. You need to believe that Christ rose from the dead and that he's coming back to judge. But you can believe all that and be no different from demons. Submitting to the truth of God may be a good start. And it is, right? Some of you who have grown up in Christian homes have already done so. You say, well, I believe all that. But believing right doctrine is not salvation. Neither is having an emotional response to right doctrine. You may be terrified at the thought of judgment. That's good. You may be thrilled at the thought of salvation. That's good. You may cry at the thought of Christ's sacrifice. Good. But these are ultimately insufficient proofs of salvation. So what separates those who only have right doctrine from those who have saving faith? What separates the person who has right doctrine from the one who has true saving faith? Willing submission to God's commands. You may ace a doctrinal test. You may be able to recite a whole confession from memory. You may falsely answer all the catechism questions. You may want to escape judgment, who wouldn't, and affirm that Christ is the only way, even your way. But having the right answers does not distinguish you from a demon. Obedience to God's commands to love him with all of your heart and soul and mind distinguishes the one with true faith from a demon. Obedience to love your neighbor as yourself distinguishes the one with saving faith from a demon. One time, Jesus came across a, 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 a demon-possessed man. And Jesus asked the man in Luke 8, verse 30, What is your name? And then the demon speaks, Legion. For many demons had entered him. We don't understand how that works, the demon speaking through the person. And then Legion... This, this, this host of demons, begged him, begged Jesus not to command them to depart, to, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Don't send us to judgment, Jesus. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, and so he gave them permission. Demons wanted Jesus to rescue them from eternal punishment. They knew that he could. They knew he could rescue them from eternal punishment. Do you have demonic faith or saving faith? See, so often we think, oh, saving faith is believing that Jesus Christ is the one who can rescue me. Jesus Christ took the punishment of my sins. A saving faith does works. So what is your faith in? 
Is your faith in the presence of faith? Does that make sense? Is your faith that you have faith? Well, I believe Jesus died for me. I'm saved. Or is your faith in Jesus Christ? Has your faith united you to Jesus Christ the way that that astronaut is tethered to that spaceship? Has your faith, does that make you, of course, much more glorious, has your faith brought you, united to you in Christ so that his death is your death and his life is your life? Being united to Christ through faith alone will never result in faith alone. Being united to Jesus Christ through faith alone will never result in faith alone. Saving faith results in works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how necessary your word is. And I thank you for uh, the kinds of things that Jesus said to a very moral people. I thank you for how he challenged them about the extent of their righteousness. I thank you, Father, for how he said such bold commands to come and follow. And we need these, Lord, when we are among so many moral, good-looking people and we blend right in. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to know from our heartfelt obedience to you out of grace and gratitude. Help us to look for proof in our life that we have saving faith by our becoming like Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you protect us from uh, confusing the object of faith, Jesus, with the reality of true saving faith that has united us with Christ. Father, I pray that there'd be lots of really good conversations following this. Conversations of parents with their kids, of us with one another, Lord. I pray, Father, that saints would be very encouraged as they leave seeing you have have declared them righteous, and now you are sanctifying them, making them like your son. But I also pray, Father, that this would be terribly sobering for any among us who have so little evidence of salvation in our lives because we continue in disobedience against you. Father, help us not to confuse having the right object of our faith with saving faith that works. In Jesus' name, amen.